0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Sorry, I'm reading from King James. In my mind. (laughs) Um, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The political forces, the economists, the brokers, the rich, the strong, probably not. One could argue it is those who are writing the scripts. It's the storytellers. See, stories are what shape values. Stories change minds. Stories motivate. Stories subvert ideas. Stories have the ability to captivate the hearts of masses. Why? Because as it's been said before, stories are the only containers that are large enough to carry life's most important truths. They not only convey convey, uh, propositions or or thoughts, but feeling and nuance and application. See, long before uh, the textbook or the university or the YouTube tutorial, there was the campfire and the table and the porch, where the story of creation and lineage and the purpose of life and why we are here was passed down from one generation to the next. And through, through countless years and countless generations and countless centuries, Those stories shaped people, and those stories shaped culture. And by and large, much of human history was passed down orally. Much of those stories, the stories of lineage, the stories of creation, the stories of why we are here, were the stories that were passed down orally, through oral tradition. This was the case in the time following the life, death, and resurrection of the historic Jesus. In fact, it's believed that for nearly 30 years, the story of Jesus' life and ministry was passed along orally. Not written like this, but spoken, told. In fact, based on the, the, the brevity of the book of Mark, it's the shortest gospel in scriptures. And based on some of the history at this time, many commentators believe that actually the gospel of Mark was originally intended to be presented from memory I tried to memorize these first eight verses (laughs) with no luck. The whole story presented from memory told all at one time. See, Mark is very much the gospel for on the go. As we compare it to the other gospels, the the gospel of Matthew, uh, no less significant, I'm not saying that, but just different uh, the, the, the Gospel of Matthew gives us the early years and the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. It's how we know about the story of the wise men that bring their gifts to Jesus. What we see in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see the lineage of Jesus and the genealogies, the, those, you know, that section of the Bible that you kind of gloss over, connecting Jesus all the way back to Father Abraham. And then Luke comes along and says, oh yeah, I'm going to take it all the way back to Adam. The birth narrative, the prophecies that Jesus fulfills, extended birth, uh, the extended birth narrative, taking up entire chapters dedicated to this. But Mark is a little bit different. Mark's like, that's great, but listen, I don't have a lot of time. So let me tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ, the anointed son of God. There was this guy named John who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. He prepares the way of the Lord, but he wears some funny clothes. Jesus gets, comes up. He gets baptized. The father says, that's my boy. He sends the Holy Spirit, but immediately drives him into the wilderness to begin his cosmic conflict with Satan, to usher in the rule and reign of the kingdom of God. You ready to go? That's Mark. Mark's like, all right, we're going places. What you'll notice throughout this account is this theme of immediacy. In fact, a variation of the word immediately shows up more than 40 times. So Mark's telling us something here. Mark is, again, the gospel for on the go. And he makes this very clear from the very first sentence by using this word gospel. See, gospel means the proclamation of good news. The story of Jesus Christ is not a dry, lifeless text to simply analyze. I'm not interested in doing that. Nor was it intended to be this formal historical treatise. It is good news to go and proclaim. It is good news for the go. But You see, something started happening. Something started shifting in those early years. What ended up happening was the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and his resurrection... Who Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, upwards of 500 in number, those men and women began to die. And so never was it more important to gather those eyewitnesses while they were still alive and the, and the, the eyewitnesses who had those accounts of Jesus Christ and begin to write them down in order that the current generation and future generations would know who Jesus is. Would know who Jesus is. It's widely held that Mark was the first to do this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to pen this account. But the question is, why Mark? Well, Mark spent some significant time with the apostles. Tradition tells us that he he spent significant time with the apostle Peter in Rome, serving as his personal secretary in some of Peter's last years. There he was, sitting at the feet of the apostle Peter, gleaning from all of the stories from, from the one that was there for it all. Someone would have, who have, would have known some of the most intimate details about Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' death and resurrection and, and the days following that. But I love, the, I love this theme here of, of recording those accounts because the recording of the gospel means that those who were present for the life and ministry of Jesus Christ somehow believed that his life and his death and his resurrection meant something important for the future generations that it meant something even for us today that who jesus actually is and what jesus actually did meant something significant for the future of the world but you see with the eyewitnesses beginning to die came not only the threat of the story being lost but also it came with it the, the threat of people beginning to craft the story, to begin to make Jesus someone who they wanted him to be, sort of similar how, to how today we attempt to make Jesus who we want him to be. My wife and I, were, last night, were just checking out at the store and, and looked at the magazine rack, and, and it was a Life magazine with the cover, on the cover, a large picture of Jesus titled Jesus. And underneath it, spanning across the cover, was this statement, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, that's an important question. In fact, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? But it was originally intended to uh, challenge the disciples' assumptions, to challenge who they believed Jesus was. Now, today, it's been twisted to simply welcome our assumptions. Who Jesus is and was who you really think Jesus is and was is what really matters. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Your Jesus is your Jesus. My Jesus is my Jesus. We begin to think about it this sort of Jesus, this is a sort of Jesus who strangely never confronts us, who strangely never challenges our thoughts or our desires, our behavior. He takes the same position we do. He votes for the same people we do. He hangs out with the same people we do. Curiously, he never disagrees with us. He always agrees with us, but then he simply disagrees with everyone that we disagree with. It's a very interesting coincidence, I guess. St. Augustine once said if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. So if you pick and choose, I like this about Jesus, I don't like that about Jesus. I like the way he loves and serves and is compassionate. I don't like what he tells me to do with my body. Uh, I love this vision of welcome, but I just don't like what he tells me to do with my money. I love, I love this, but I don't like this. And what we find is that we're actually believing a version of ourselves. See, what we discover is that this sort of Jesus that simply reflects us becomes very hollow and very lifeless very quickly. We we realize that meaningful relationships don't work that way. We recognize, in fact, that the most meaningful relationships are the ones that move us towards growth, that, that, that shape us, that challenge us, that change us for the better. As one pastor put it, a Jesus of your own that you make up, he can't change you, he can't renew you, he can't transform you. There's no hope found in a Jesus of your own making. A Jesus of our own making leaves us up to our own devices. But I think that you're here today because you realize that that prospect just isn't cutting it. That the more you look within, the more frustration you find. The more you look for light within, the more darkness you find. The more life that you look for within, the more death you find. John the baptizer, speaking of Jesus, said, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie. Let me ask you, can you say that about your Jesus that you made? Can you say that about the Jesus of your making? You and I need the real Jesus, the one who can truly heal us, the one who can truly transform us, the one who can truly rescue us, the only one that is actually worthy of following. And that's what Mark intends intends to tell us about. So who is Jesus? Well, Mark wastes no time really centering the story on the main character. Mark's a brilliant writer. And he's going to employ some literary devices. He builds tension into the story. There's themes and there's motifs and uh, these sort of things. But he gets right to the point describing just who the central figure is. There's no like, who's it going to be? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is who we're talking about. This is who the story's about. This is my main theme this is my point. And within the short prologue, which some believe is the first eight verses, some believe is the first 13 verses, some believe is the first 15 verses, but within the short prologue uh, to Mark, there's some really important descriptions of Jesus that I want to I reference briefly today. The first is this Jesus is the Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. Now, we have become so accustomed to the name Jesus Christ that we probably treat that term like it's his last name. Okay? Jesus Christ, Christian Simus, Paul Miller, right? That's how it works. But Christ is not a last name. It is not a given. Christ actually has a very significant meaning. It means anointed royal figure. Mark is saying very abruptly, right out of the gate here, Jesus is the Messiah that God has promised. Who would come to earth and establish the rule and reign of God in the lineage of David to establish the kingdom that has no end. That liberator who would set the captives free. The Messiah is here. The one that Isaiah prophesied of the one that Malachi and the other prophets prophesied of, this one that was coming, the one that John the Baptist came to prepare the way for, the one who would bring pardon and forgiveness for our sins and baptize us in the power and ministry of his Holy Spirit. This is the one. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. This is good news of God's deliverance that it has come. The second thing that Mark shows us is that Jesus is the very son of God. Jesus is the very son of God. Now, this, is, this was extremely scandalous and subversive for him to say this, especially if tradition is true that Mark is penning this in Rome, right under the seat of power. See, Mark is the first gospel writer, but he is not the first one to pen this statement, the good news of the Son of God. See, when Julius Caesar, history tells us when Julius Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March in 44 B.C., that same year and sometime around that summer, a comet appeared in the sky. And everyone's saying, what does it mean? And Octavius, his adopted son, says that is the sign that Julius Caesar was divine. That is, that is Caesar on his way back up to heaven. That's God. He was a God. And so after Octavius took power in Rome and changed his name to Caesar Augustus, he became known as, here it, here it comes, the son of God. Pappy was God, and I'm the son of God. In fact, decades before this letter here in Mark, there's an inscription in stone called the Priene Calendar that dates back to 9 BC. It says this. Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he's done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus, listen to these words, was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. The beginning of the good news of the Son of God, Augustus, who has eliminated any ability for anyone ever to surpass his worth. And then here comes Mark, decades later, saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, drop the mic. (laughs) Decades later, subverting that claim. The appearance of Jesus, is when the good news for the world really began. What he's doing is he's subverting and denying any previous claim of Caesar and stating that Jesus Christ is the true son of God, the true king. This is good news. It's good news for us today. This is the good news that there is hope for our world, listen, beyond broken politics. That there is hope beyond the world of broken politicians. The son of God. Thirdly, Mark tells us that Jesus is the humble king. Now, it's very interesting the way, if we pay attention really to this inauguration celebration of sorts. For someone of such great worth, of such great magnitude appearing on the scene, you, we would tend to expect you know, the kind of celebration found for the emperor of Rome or some other king in that time. Extravagance, trumpets, dancers, exotic animals, food and wine and cheers and crowds. What welcome does this king receive? Pay attention. One man, clothed in camel's hair, who eats bugs and he lives in the wilderness. Now, I know this sounds like a hipster's dream, right? Like, are these locusts, like, free-range? Are they organic? Are they, Were they treated fairly? But this is obscure. This is really obscure. And this, this, this really sets the scene of how this king is going to establish his reign. In fact, this introduction is key. We're paying attention right now because this is key to understanding the rest of the story. Jesus does not establish his rule and reign through power and pomp and arrogance and self-promotion. This is the good news of a humble, serving, sacrificial king. Mark tells us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the humble king. Fourth, that Jesus is the Lord in the wilderness. See, the, the, this, the prophecy that John is fulfilling, John the baptizer is fulfilling, is that there will be this single voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way, make straight the paths of the Lord. So that begs the question where will we find the Lord when he appears? Where, where do we meet this king? It's not in the city, it's not in the palace, it's in the wilderness. It's in the wilderness. Now, when you think wilderness, don't think, like, wooded forest with friendly creatures and the smell of pine and campfire and Patagonia gear, right? This is, this is a very different scene. Think Joshua Tree National Park. I know, this is, this is the hipster's dream right now, isn't it? Think, uh, think uh, Middle Eastern desert. A dry, lifeless, lonely, deserted place. That's where you will find this king. If you look at the whole of scripture, this is where people meet with God. In the book of Genesis, this is where Jacob meets with God in the book of Exodus. This is where Moses meets with God in the burning bush in the wilderness. Later on in the book of Exodus, as God brings Israel out of Egypt, out of their bondage and slavery, they meet God in the wilderness. But the question is, why the wilderness? What's so special about the wilderness? Let me put it simply. The the wilderness is the place that you die without the intervention of God. It's the place that God sent manna from heaven so that his people could eat, who wouldn't otherwise eat. It's the place where water gushes from the rock, where there would be otherwise no water. The wilderness, is other, in other words, is the place where you realize that life is hopeless apart from God. This is a strong theme in the book of Mark. Life is hopeless without God. And so it should be no surprise that this is where we meet Jesus. This is where Jesus appears. Where can we experience Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God? It's really in the place where we come to the end of ourselves. It's in that moment where we look at our lives and we find lack. It's in those moments where we realize that the, the well has run dry, and it's there that we meet the very life of God. It's there that we're baptized in the refreshing waters of the Holy Spirit. See, this is the good news for those who feel like their life journey has taken some detours. And they find themselves off course in the wilderness. And yet that's where Jesus appears. Finally, Mark tells us that Jesus is the way of a new beginning. Jesus is the way of a new beginning. If you guys have your Bible, hold it up for me to Mark. Do one of these here. If you got it. For you 21st century people, let's do this together. We, we hand out Bibles back there. Just grab a real one. Just grab a real one. <laughs> amen. From our King James sister back there. <laughs> <laughs> of course that's the amen from back there. Okay. Isn't it interesting that it says beginning right here? I don't know. Three quarters of the way through. Isn't that interesting that, that Mark says beginning so far in? And in this moment, he's evoking creation imagery throughout this account here. See, see, chronologically, this doesn't make sense. Not this far in, unless Mark is indicating that there is something life-altering that comes midway. That comes after the story's already started. When everything seems lost, and now you realize it's just too late to course correct that Jesus somehow marks a new beginning. Not modification, not simple reform, not God wiping out humanity and then starting over, but listen, a new beginning. See, the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is God's provision of restoration. That Jesus is God's means for restoring. The appearance of Christ means the ushering in of the renewal of all things. Christ brings life where there was death. He brings hope where things are bleak. He brings holiness where things are broken. He brings healing where there is hurt. Christ, the the new beginning. And Jesus is really at the center of God making all things new. He's making all things new in eternity. He's making all things new in human history. And Listen, he's making all things new in your life as well. In our lives, in our broken stories, where we realize it is too late to course correct. In our broken stories, where we realize, like I don't need modification, I don't need simple change. I am dead inside. I need life. There's hopelessness within me. I need a new beginning. This last week, the news of Santoya Brown's life sentencing being life sentence being commuted by. Uh, the, the Tennessee governor was all over the media. At 16, she was the victim of human trafficking, but you know, she took the life of an individual who had hired her for prostitution, which made things sort of complicated. Cyntoia Brown committed by her own admission that she had committed a, 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 a horrific crime. And so she received 50 years now, this, this, there was a lot of scrutiny around this based on the fact that she was underage and the circumstances, that she was a victim of human trafficking, that she was forced into uh, prostitution. Now, during her time in prison through the faithful ministry of the local church and prison outreaches, uh, Centoia received Christ. And she began with what limited resources were available to her to begin that path of Transformation. And this, at, the, at her hearing this last week, she told the people that were listening to her case that she had a simple prayer. And her prayer was for mercy and for a second chance, which by God's grace was granted. And after receiving clemency, she was quoted saying this. Listen to these words. We serve a God of second chances and new beginnings. The Lord has held my hand this whole time and I would have never made it without him. Let today be a testament of his saving grace. Let this moment be a testament of God's saving grace. See, our lives, like hers, our stories, they are messy and they are complicated and yet they can become testaments of God's saving grace. In the book of Acts, Jesus is referred to as the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. The author of life, whom God raised from the dead. See, this morning, we all come with some really broken stories. Stories of sin, stories of hurt, stories of wounds, those that we have inflicted, those that we have received. The gospel tells us is that God doesn't ignore that past nor does he erase it. But in his wisdom and his love, God, the author of light, writes surprising grace into our story and hope into our future. How? Because he writes his son, Jesus Christ, into that story. The word of God who takes on flesh to come and dwell among us. See, the good news is that the author of life came to bring forgiveness of sin. The author of life, Jesus Christ, came so that we could experience new life through his Holy Spirit. And the author of life, Jesus Christ, came so that we could have hope for the future. For all those who repent and believe. That's the simple message of John. Prepare the way. Repent. Repent. Repentance is an act of faith where we turn to God to receive his new beginning. And for the Christian, repentance is an ongoing pattern, the ongoing pattern of living into God's story, living into the story that the author of life has written for us. So I want to conclude with a question today, and here it is. What story is shaping you? What story are you living into Is it the empty promise? Is it the story of the empty promises of self-fulfillment? Is it the one where you have set yourself up as a God to be in control, to write your own story, to attempt to rewrite your own broken story? Is it the hollow existence of nominal Christianity where you pick and choose what you want from God? I'll take this, but I reject this or is it the one that the author of life writes with surprising grace and merciful power the hope of the gospel is that we can be rescued from the destructive patterns of the world and that we can be rescued from the disappointing existence of autonomy and brought into god's beautiful story story of redemption story of fresh start story of new beginnings what narrative are you living into? What, what, what story have you allowed to shape your life? What story are you allowing to steer your heart? What story are you allowing to fill your hopes? Because it will either be the news of the life and rescue through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, or it will be some other story. But here's the truth. One leads to hope. One leads to hope. One leads to life. One leads to a new beginning. Amen? Amen.